All right. Uh, so at this point, we have finished the first eight chapters of the book of Romans. We're, and, and in those eight chapters, Paul basically explained the theory of our salvation or the theory behind our salvation in like heaps and heaps of detail. Chapter 8 finished with what is like an absolutely spectacular conclusion to all that Paul has said so far. If God has chosen us and he's died for us and he's adopted us as his children and placed his spirit inside of us, if God loves us that much, then who will separate us from the love of Christ? And Paul concludes, I am convinced that neither death nor life nor angels nor heavenly rulers, nor things that are present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor heights, heights, nor depth, nor anything else in creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. Which is basically like mic drop, right? Thus ends Paul's explanation of the theory of salvation. Kind of. Because you see, like, these are great and wonderful promises Nothing can separate us from the love of God, but that's only useful if God actually keeps the promises that he makes. And so then, then the question comes, well, what about Israel? Because God made some pretty great and wonderful promises to them too. In Jeremiah 31, this is what the Lord says, He who appoints the sun to shine by day, who decrees the moon and stars to shine by night, who stirs up the sea so that its waves roar. The Lord Almighty is his name. Only if these decrees vanish from my sight, declares the Lord, will Israel ever cease being a nation before me. This is what the Lord says. Only if the heavens above can be measured and the foundations of the earth below searched out, will I reject all the descendants of Israel because, all they have, because of all they have done, declares the Lord. And so that's a pretty explicit promise, right? As long as the sun is shining during the day and the moon and stars are shining at night, God will not reject the descendants of Israel. But at the time that Paul was writing, the Jewish people as a nation appeared to have lost their relationship with God. And in fact, things got a whole lot worse after Paul wrote this letter. A decade or so later, Jerusalem was destroyed and the Jewish people were scattered throughout the world and there was no nation of Israel for almost 2,000 years, which is a problem, right? It kind of seems like God hasn't kept his promise. And if God hasn't kept his promises to Israel, well, then what makes us think that he'll keep his promises to us? In other words, unless God keeps the promises that he made to Israel, we can't trust him to keep the promises that he's made to us. And so that's where Paul goes next. What about Israel? Has God abandoned them? Has he rejected them? Has he broken his promises to them? And spoiler, the answer, which will come in Romans 11 in a couple of chapters time, as it is, as it was for so many of Paul's other questions, is absolutely not. God has not rejected his people. But we have a bit of a journey ahead of us before we reach that answer. And it starts here in Romans 9. And fair warning, this is a tough, tough chapter that raises some very difficult issues and asks some uncomfortable but important questions. So get ready. Anyway, that's, that's where we're at now. So we're now moving into this next um, section, chapters 9, 10, and 11, which deal with the issue of Israel and how, what's going on with Israel. And for now, we're kicking off with Romans 9. 
which begins, I am telling the truth in Christ. I am not lying. For my conscience assures me in the Holy Spirit, I have great sorrow and unceasing anguish in my heart. For I could wish that I myself were accursed, cut off from Christ, for the sake of my people, my fellow countrymen who are Israelites. To them belong the adoption as sons, the glory, the covenants, the giving of the law, the temple worship, and the promises. To them belong the patriarchs, and from them, by human descent, came the Messiah, the Christ, who is God over all. Blessed forever. Amen. And so this is a rather, I think, surprising turn from the glorious climax of chapter 8, right? In, in light of the magnificent gospel that Paul has just finished explaining, you'd expect them to be joyous. But instead, Paul says he has great sorrow and unceasing anguish, which you don't really pick up on in the previous eight chapters, right? Like he didn't sound like he was in unceasing anguish as he explained the grace of God, the good news to us and the Gentile believers in Rome. But now you see he's like opening his heart up a bit to his readers. He's like, yes, the gospel is amazing. Our salvation is amazing. And Paul is honored to be sharing it, to be explaining it to us, the Gentile believers. But it also breaks his heart because because it's come at such a great, great cost. It's like he's saying, I'm super happy for you. Honestly, I am, but I'm also heartbroken for my people who are being lost. And Paul says something that's actually quite shocking. He says that I could wish that I myself were accursed. The Greek word that's translated accursed is anathema. It's the word used um, to describe something that's been devoted to God a sacrifice that's been set aside to die in the place of someone else. And it's something that is doomed to destruction without any hope of it being redeemed. So do you understand what he's saying? He goes on and says, I could wish that I myself were cut off from Christ for the sake of my people. Is Paul exaggerating? I don't think so. Like he says, I'm telling the truth. I'm not lying, right? So this is honestly how he feels. And one has, I think you have to ask the question, like, is there anyone that you love that much? Anyone for whom you would rather be cut off from Jesus to lose your salvation if it means that they would be saved? Anyway, that's apparently how deeply Paul loved his people. He would give up his salvation if it meant the Jewish people would be saved. Now, it's worth remembering that the feeling wasn't mutual. As far as the gospel was concerned, the Jewish people were Paul's enemies. They persecuted him everywhere he went, and eventually they had him killed. And yet Paul loved them so deeply that he was willing to lose everything for them. Does that remind you of anyone? Moses was in much the same position when he begged God to forgive the people of Israel or kill him with them. But of course, Jesus is the ultimate example who gave his life for the very people who killed him. He became accursed, anathema, to set us free from the curse. Anyone, anyway, <clears throat> Paul goes on to explain why this is all so tragic. He says, to them belong the adoption of sons, the glory, the covenants, the giving of the law, the temple worship, and the promises. To them belong the patriarchs, and from them by human descent came the Christ. 
And so Israel were given absolutely everything, even the Messiah, the means of salvation itself, and yet they failed to receive it. In Luke 12, Jesus says, For everyone who has been given much, much will be required. And from the one who has been entrusted with much, even more will be asked. And so the point is that whatever the reason for Israel's failure, it doesn't lie with God. God gave them absolutely everything they needed to recognize and receive their Messiah. Remember, Jesus even presented himself to them in the way that they expected the Messiah to come from Zechariah 9, riding on a donkey, and yet they rejected him. So this was their own fault, not the fault of God. Before we move on, I don't want you to miss the significance of Paul's final words in verse 5. See, there are many groups and people, including Muslims, including Jehovah's Witnesses, who believe that Jesus was a prophet of God, but but they don't believe that he was God himself. And some people even claim that the Bible doesn't say that Jesus is God. Well, Paul makes it exceptionally clear here. He says, the Messiah, the Christ, who is God over all, blessed forever. Amen. Jesus is God, become man. Anyway, Paul goes on, It's not as though the word of God had failed, for not all those who are descended from Israel are truly Israel, nor are all the children Abraham's true descendants. Rather, through Isaac will your descendants be counted. This means it is not the children of the flesh who are the children of God. Rather, the children of promise are counted as descendants. And so, okay, maybe it wasn't God's fault. Maybe he's not the one who failed. But still, doesn't Israel's failure mean that God's word and his promises have failed? And Paul says, well, no, right? Just as not all the children of Abraham received God's promises to Abraham, only Isaac did, not Ishmael. So not all the children of Israel, Jacob, will receive God's promises to Israel. And Paul lays out a principle here that it is by election, not genetics, that your place in the family of God is determined. Now, it's worth just noting that this doesn't support replacement theology, which is something we'll talk a lot more about in um, Romans 11. This does not support the idea that the Gentile church has replaced Israel in God's plan. Paul hasn't said that the true Israel are not physically descended from Israel, nor has he said that the children of promise are not also children of the flesh. He simply said that not all those physically descended from Israel are true Israel and not all those who are children of the flesh are the children of promise. Does that make sense? Paul is making the point that God has always chosen a remnant, not the whole. But the remnant is still a part of the whole. Okay, so Paul goes on to uh, demonstrate this principle in more detail. He says, For this is what the promise declared. About a year from now, I will return and Sarah will have a son. Not only that, but when Rebecca had conceived children by one man, our ancestor Isaac, even before they were born or had done anything good or bad, so that God's purpose in election would stand, not by works, but by his calling, it was said to her, the older will serve the younger. Just as it is written, Jacob I loved, but Esau I hated. So Paul gives... 
two examples here that demonstrate the same thing, that God chooses who he blesses. And in um, 2 Corinthians 13, it says, by the testimony of two or three witnesses, every matter will be established. And so Paul gives us two examples. The first is Abraham. Abraham had two sons, Ishmael and Isaac. But the promises that God made to Abraham passed only to Isaac, Abraham's youngest son. They did not go to Ishmael because Ishmael wasn't chosen. Now, why was Isaac chosen? It wasn't because he did anything to merit it, right? He was chosen before he was even born. And so he wasn't chosen because he was special. It's, he was special because he was chosen. And, and that was made deliberately clear by the means of his birth, the fact that it was a miracle. But in Ishmael's case, you could maybe argue that he wasn't a legitimate child of Abraham. His mom was Sarah's maidservant, Hagar. And Paul actually makes a point of this in his letter to the Galatians. Paul, uh, people, in, people were telling the Gentile Christians in Galatia that they needed to become Jewish, that they needed to obey the law of Moses to be disciples of Jesus. And obviously, Paul wasn't happy about this. He says, Tell me, you who want to be under the law, do you not understand the law? For it is written that Abraham had two sons, one by the slave woman and the other by the free woman. But one, the son of the slave woman, was born of natural descent, while the other, the son by the free woman, was born through the promise. These things may be treated as an allegory, for these women represent two covenants. One is from Mount Sinai, bearing children for slavery. This is Hagar. Now, Hagar represents Mount Sinai in Arabia and corresponds to the present Jerusalem, for she is in slavery with her children. But the Jerusalem above is free, and she is our mother. But you, brothers and sisters, are children of the promise like Isaac. But just as at that time, the one born by natural descent persecuted the one born according to the Spirit, so it is now. But what does the Scripture say? Throw out the slave woman and her son, for the son of the slave woman will not share the inheritance with the son of the free woman. Therefore, brothers and sisters, we are not children of the slave woman, but of the free woman. For freedom Christ has set us free. So stand firm then. And do not be subject again to the yoke of slavery. And so Paul says that the story of Ishmael and Isaac is an allegory. It's a prophetic pattern. The Jews of his day, of Paul's day, who were still enslaved to the law of Moses, were like Ishmael. And they were persecuting the believers, Isaac, who had been set free by God's grace. Now, it's, it's interesting to me that although Paul here is talking about Ishmael, he doesn't use his name. And in fact, the name of Ishmael doesn't appear anywhere in the New Testament. It's as though he's been completely written out of God's covenant, both of them. As Paul says, the son of the slave woman will not share the inheritance with the son of the free woman. Anyway, like I said, you could maybe imagine that Isaac is a more legitimate descendant of Abraham than Ishmael was. But there's no such ambiguity when it comes to Isaac's children. Jacob and Esau were literally twins. But God chose Jacob. Why did he choose Jacob? Well, like with Isaac, God made this choice even before they were born or had done anything good or bad. So God didn't choose Jacob because he had done something to deserve it, nor was it because God knew that he would do something to deserve it in the future. Paul's quite explicit. God's election is not by works. Jacob did not earn it or deserve it. It was by his calling, 
so that God's purpose in election would stand. And the point, the point being, the fact that only some of Israel have received Jesus as their Messiah should not be a surprise. This is a long-standing pattern. It goes all the way back to Abraham. Like Paul said to the Galatians, do not understand the law. If you know God's word, this makes perfect sense. God's promises and blessings have never gone to all the physical descendants, only the chosen remnant, those chosen not by works, not because they deserved it, but by God's grace. And so God's word hasn't failed. This pattern or principle we see in, in God's word has simply played out again in the relationship between Israel and Jesus. Now, before we move on, what about that reference, Jacob I love, but Esau I hated? I've always found that so difficult. Like, Jacob and Esau are not even born yet. How can God say that he hates Esau? And I'll be honest, like, I still find it difficult. But I'll make a couple of comments. Firstly, I've often seen it said that this is a less, this is less a description of God's emotional attitude. It's not saying how he feels about Jacob and Esau, but more a description of how he acted towards them. That in choosing to give his promises and his blessings to Jacob, God acted as though he hated Esau. And I think there's truth in that, but I think it actually goes a bit beyond that. Paul here is paraphrasing Malachi 1, and, and this is Malachi 1. This is an oracle, the Lord's message to Israel through Malachi. I have loved you, says the Lord, but you say, how have you loved us? Esau was Jacob's brother, the Lord explains, yet I chose Jacob and rejected Esau. I turned Esau's mountains into a deserted wasteland and gave his territory to the wild jackals. Edom, it's another name for Esau, says, though we are devastated, we will once again build the ruined places. So the Lord of heaven's armies responds, they indeed may build, but I will overthrow. They will be known as the land of evil, the people with whom the Lord is permanently displeased. Your eyes will see it, and then you will say, may the Lord be magnified even beyond the border of Israel. You know, I can't read those words, how have you loved us, without like cringing, because, well, partly, that's so often how we feel or act, right? We're so often blind to all the evidence of God's love for us. Anyway, God basically says, look at Esau. You were brothers, but look at how I've treated you compared to him. And then ask me how I've loved you. You see, I think part of the reason why God treated Esau so badly compared to Israel was to demonstrate the extent of his love to Israel so that they would have or, or at least should have no doubt about God's love for them. All they had to do was look at Esau and it would be obvious. Now, as I think you'll see, Paul builds on this idea in the coming verses, but not before he addresses the question that probably every heart asks when those words are read, and certainly a question that my heart asks. In fact, it actually comes out more like a statement. That's unfair, isn't it? Well, that's how Paul continues. What shall we say then? Is there injustice with God? Absolutely not, for he says to Moses, I will have mercy on whom I have mercy, and I will have compassion on whom I have compassion. So then it does not depend on human desire or exertion, but on God who shows mercy. For the scripture says to Pharaoh, for this very purpose, I have raised you up, that I may demonstrate my power in you, and that my name may be proclaimed in all the earth. 
So then God has mercy on whom he chooses to have mercy and he hardens whom he chooses to harden. So again, that's the question that no doubt confronts every one of us. Isn't that unfair? And Paul uses his standard unambiguous answer, absolutely not. And well, he would say that, right? But to be honest, it's not immediately obvious to me how Paul's explanation justifies that answer. God can have mercy on whomever he wants. Yeah, sure. Okay. At least in theory, God can do what he wants. That's obviously true, but it's not very satisfying. Like it still sounds kind of unfair, at least to me. And perhaps it is. We'll talk more about that soon, but I think it's important to distinguish between what we tend to call unfair and what Paul is calling unjust. You're being unfair when you treat people differently for no reason, right? Justice, on the other hand, doesn't really care how you treat someone else. The question is, did this person get what they deserve to get? Did they get what was right or just? And there's actually a brilliant example of this in Matthew 20, which is a story you're probably all familiar with. Jesus is talking to his disciples about the kingdom of heaven, and he tells them a parable. There's this man who owns a vineyard, and he needs people to work in it. And so early in the morning, maybe like 6 a.m., he heads into town and finds some people who have nothing to do. And he says to them, I'll give you 200 bucks, come and work in my vineyard for the day. And they agree. And so they go to work in this vineyard. And as you know, the owner goes out another four times during the day and, and um, hires more people to work for him. And the last group that he hires are, are only hired at 5 o'clock at night, 5 p.m. And an hour later, 6 p.m., the day is over. And so the workers come to get paid and the owner pays them all $200. Understandably, the men who had been working since 6 a.m. are like, uh, that's not fair. And in a sense, it isn't, right? They've worked hard all day and been paid the same as people who had only worked for an hour. But the landowner replied to them, friend, I'm not treating you unfairly. Didn't you agree with me to work for the standard wage? Take what is yours and go. I want to give to this last man the same as I gave to you. Don't I have the right to do what I want with what is mine? The word that's translated unfairly, it's essentially the same word that was translated unjust in Romans 9. Both come from a word, um, akidos, that means to violate justice, to not do what is just or right. And I think that would be a better word to use here, unjust, because... If we think that treating people differently for no reason is unfair, then this actually is unfair, right? But it's not unjust. The landowner has not denied anyone anything that they were owed. And I think that's the point that Paul is making here. In verse 16, he says that God's blessing does not depend on desire or exertion, but on God who shows mercy. God doesn't bless us because of something we've done. He doesn't bless us because we deserve it. If he did, no one would ever experience his blessing, right? Rather, God's blessings are an expression of his mercy, his compassion. You see, both Esau and Jacob, had both Esau and Jacob deserved God's blessing, it would be unjust for him to deny it to Esau. But the reality is not that. The reality is that none of us deserve God's blessing. Esau didn't deserve it, and Jacob didn't either. There's uh, a great story about um, Charles Spurgeon, who's a, um, a British evangelist, 
where a woman apparently said to him once, I can't understand why God would say that he hated Esau. Spurgeon replied, that is not my difficulty, madam. My trouble is understanding how God could love Jacob. And you can hardly read the story of Jacob without asking, like, why Jacob? What on earth did God see in him? Even Isaac, even his dad preferred Esau. But I think maybe that's exactly the point. There is nothing in Jacob that deserved God's blessing. If God had chosen not to bless Jacob, that would not have been unjust. And so God can't be unjust if he chooses not to bless Esau. He never deserved God's blessing either. Does that make sense? But I guess a follow-up question would be, having shown mercy to Jacob, is God not then obliged to show mercy to Esau too? Like, you know, if, if God shows mercy to someone, is he not then required to show mercy to everyone? Well, again, by the testimony of two or three witnesses, every matter will be established. And we have three witnesses. We have three different people who give the same answer to that question. We have God, who Paul quotes from Exodus as saying, I will be gracious to whom I will be gracious, and I will show mercy to whom I show mercy. And then we have Jesus in the parable that we looked at earlier saying, don't I have the right to do what I want with what is mine? And then we have Paul who concludes, so then God has mercy on whom he chooses to have mercy and he hardens whom he chooses to harden. So the answer is no, right? Having shown mercy to someone, God is, by his own words, not required or obliged to show mercy to everyone else. Having shown mercy to Jacob, God isn't required to show mercy to Esau. Mercy is, by very definition, undeserved. And so again, we can't really complain that God hasn't shown mercy to such and such. They didn't deserve it. And we, we can only really ask why he has shown mercy to someone else. Now, I get that. Intellectually, it makes sense. Logically, it's obvious that God is free to show mercy to whomever he likes. But I have to admit, I don't, again, find that answer emotionally satisfying. It still feels unfair to me. Maybe God isn't required to show mercy to someone, but why wouldn't he? I don't think there's an easy answer to this. I've I've struggled with it a lot. Um, But for what it's worth, here's where I've ended up. In verse 17, Paul gives the example of Pharaoh and he quotes God's words to Pharaoh in Exodus 9. He says, but for this very purpose, I've raised you up that I may demonstrate my power in you and that my name may be proclaimed in all the earth. And that's an interesting but uncomfortable statement from my perspective. God claims to have raised this man up for a reason to fulfill a purpose. What purpose? Well, it's so that God can demonstrate his strength, his power to him and through him. Why does God want to do that? Well, it's so that his name may be declared in all the earth. It's so that others would know him. If you look a bit further on in the story, in Exodus 10, God says to Moses, Go to Pharaoh, for I have hardened his heart and the heart of his servants, in order to display these signs of mine before him, so that in the hearing of your son and your grandson, you may tell how I made fools of the Egyptians and about my signs that I displayed among them, so that you may know that I am the Lord. So again, God is using Pharaoh and the Egyptians as a way to demonstrate his power. Why? For what purpose? Well, it's so that Israel may know that I am the Lord. It's so that his people would recognize their God. 
Then in the next chapter, God tells Moses about the final plague, the death of the firstborn sons. And God says, throughout the whole land of Egypt, there will be loud wailing, worse than there has ever been or ever will be again. But among the Israelites, not a dog will bark at any person or animal. Then you will know that the Lord distinguishes between Egypt and Israel. So this final judgment on Egypt is horrific. There will be mourning like no other time in history, at least within Egypt. But amongst God's people, not even a dog will bark. Why? Because then you will know that the Lord distinguishes between Egypt and Israel. God is creating a contrast between the objects of his mercy and the objects of his judgment. He's making the difference between Israel and Egypt so clear, so obvious that everyone will see it. But again, why is he doing that? What does he hope to achieve? I think that brings us back to God's words in Malachi, right? I have loved you, says the Lord, but you say, how have you loved us? God basically says, look at Esau. Look at how I've treated him and then ask me how I've loved you. The purpose in all of this, in all the judgment and power that God demonstrated through the lives of those in Egypt and Edom and Esau is to demonstrate his love to Israel. And seeing that love, recognizing the undeserved mercy that she has received, the hope is that it would produce in her, in Israel, a repentant, obedient heart that would love and trust the one who, as it says in 1 John 4, first loved us. And so here's what all of this makes me wonder. We can't see without contrast, right? If everything is the same color and the same brightness and the same texture, can you see a blue chair standing in front of a blue wall? Like you can only see an object if there is contrast between it and its, and its surroundings, right? And so I wonder, is that why God allows circumstances in which the outcome for everyone is not the same? Does there need to be contrast? Would, would anyone receive God's mercy if everyone received God's mercy? And you can think of Israel, right? Would Israel have worshipped and trusted God if they had not seen Egypt destroyed? They barely did as it is. Anyway, I think this is kind of what Paul is suggesting here. It's not explicit, but I think we see hints of it in the coming verses. For the sake of those who receive his mercy, God allows some to miss out on it. Now, I'm not suggesting at all that I like that answer or that I think it's fair. We'll get to that, I promise. But I wonder whether that is the reality. First, though, if this is, is true, it raises a logical objection. Paul says, you will say to me then, why does he still find fault? Who has ever resisted his will? But who indeed are you, a mere human being, to talk back to God? Does what is molded say to the molder, why have you made me like this? Has the potter no right to make from the same lump of clay one vessel for special use and another for ordinary use? What if God, willing to demonstrate his wrath and to make known his power, has endured with much patience the objects of wrath prepared for destruction? And what if he is willing to make known the wealth of his glory on the objects of mercy that he has prepared beforehand for glory, even us whom he has called, not only from the Jews, but also from the Gentiles? In other words, if in rejecting God, we're simply fulfilling God's purpose for us, we're allowing him to demonstrate his power through us, how can he judge us for that? That's what Paul's asking. Aren't we just doing what he created us to do? And Paul's answer is, well, basically, who do you think you are? What gives you the right to question God? And 
again, I can't really argue with that. Like, obviously, God has the right to do what he likes with his creation. And obviously, it's absurd for a created thing to argue with the one who created it. What Paul says there about the pottery saying to the potter, why have you made me like this, is a reference to the book of Isaiah, where God says in a couple of places, Woe to those who try to hide their plans from the Lord, who, who do their work in secret and boast, who sees us, who knows what we're doing. Your thinking is backwards. Should the potter be thought of as clay? Should the thing that was made say about its maker, he didn't make me? Or should the pottery say about the potter, he doesn't know what he's doing? And then in Isaiah 45, he says, Woe to the one who argues with his creator, one who is like a mere shard of pottery among the other shards on the ground. Should the clay say to the potter, What are you doing? Your work looks like someone made by a person who has no hands. I don't know how familiar you are with this, but it's not uncommon to hear words very much like that today. Many people, famous people, look at this world and say, What kind of God would create a world like this? If this world was created, the creator wasn't a good one. Stephen Fry, who you'll probably have heard of, when asked what he would say to God if he ever met him, Stephen Fry is an atheist. He doesn't believe in God, but he was asked in an interview, like, when you, if you were to meet God, what would you say to him? This is what he said. He said, how dare you create a world in which there is such misery that is not our fault? It's not right. It's utterly, utterly evil. Why should I respect a capricious, mean-minded, stupid God who creates a world that is so full of injustice and pain? That's what I would say. Because the God that created this universe, if it was created by a God, is quite clearly a maniac, an utter maniac, totally selfish. We have to spend our life on our knees thanking him. What kind of God would do that? This is the same thing, right? He doesn't know what he's doing. Your work looks like something made by a person who has no hands. Why have you made me like this? Now, obviously, if we are in fact created, it's absurd to question the wisdom of our creator. He must know what he's doing far better than we do. And he clearly has the right to make whoever or whatever he likes. And yet it feels uncomfortable, right? To create people with no hope of salvation feels unfair. It feels wrong. And that's a problem because we don't believe that morality is determined by fear, that God just arbitrarily says this is good and this is bad. We believe that morality is determined by the nature and character of the God who created us in his image. If something is morally wrong for us, it should be morally wrong. No, it should be impossible for God to act in that way. And the Bible is very clear. Deuteronomy says, As for the rock, his work is perfect, for all his ways are just. He is a faithful God who is never unjust. He is righteous and upright. In Psalms, righteousness and justice are the foundation of your throne. Loyal love and faithfulness characterize your rule. And Genesis 18, Abraham says to God, Will not the judge of all the earth do what is right? The Bible teaches that God is the very definition of righteousness and love. He actually cannot do whatever he likes. God is constrained by the same morality, the same righteousness that he expects of us. And so if, if God is, in fact, doing something wrong, that's a big problem. 
it means that God is not, in fact, righteous. And if God is not righteous, well, then all the stuff we've just read, right? Then what the Bible says is actually wrong. It's not true. And if the Bible isn't true, well, then is God even true? Now, before we get too worked up, it's not quite as bad as that. For some reasons that I've had the opportunity to share with you guys um, already and others that I'll hopefully get to share with you in the future, I believe that the Bible, I believe that the Bible is demonstrably true, that you can demonstrate, that you can show that the Bible is true. And there is literally no question about that for me, which means I'm not actually asking, is God doing something wrong? I'm asking, why does it feel wrong to me? Does that make sense? If you know that the Bible is true, and I think that there are lots of ways to show that it is, then you know that God is righteous. And so when you deal with an issue like this, the question changes. You're not asking whether the Bible is true. You already know that it is. And you're not asking whether God is good because you know that He is. Instead, you're simply trying to figure out what you're missing to understand why it doesn't make sense to you. Yeah? Anyway, there's something very important for you to remember. Just because something feels wrong, it doesn't mean that it is. There are at least three possibilities. Firstly, maybe it is wrong, right? Fine. Two, our understanding of what is right may be wrong. Our consciences are all to one degree or another. Sorry. Our consciences are all to one degree or another corrupted. And so for some reason, maybe what we think is wrong actually isn't wrong. And then the third possibility is that our understanding of the situation, what, what's actually happening is wrong. And in this case, I think it's that, that last one. I think we're dealing with number three. I think we don't actually understand what's going on here. You see, the reason this all feels wrong is that it seems to suggest, as, as I've said, that God creates people with no hope of salvation. Now, in a sense, I think that is probably true, but not quite in the way that we tend to think that it is. And here's a slightly different question. Has God ever created somebody who he didn't want to save? This is 1 Peter 3, 9. The Lord is not slow in keeping his promise as under some understand slowness. Instead, he is being patient with you because he does not want anyone to be lost, but everyone to come to repentance. So in context, he's talking about the promise is his promised return, that Jesus is coming back. And they're like, why is he taking so long? And Paul, uh, Peter's saying, it's not, he's not slow. Like He's being patient. He's giving as much time as possible for as many people as possible to come to repentance and come to salvation. Why? Because he does not want anyone to be lost. So the answer to that question, has God ever created somebody he didn't want to save, is an emphatic absolutely not. God does not want to lose anyone. If he had his way, everyone would be saved. Everyone would know him and everybody would be with him. What's more, the Bible says, if you seek him, he will allow himself to be found by you. That's First Chronicles. Matthew, ask and it will be given to you. Seek and you will find. Knock and the door will be opened for you. Jeremiah 29, you will seek me and you will find me when you seek me with all your heart. Again, this is clear, right? Unambiguous. God declares that anybody who seeks him will find him if they seek him with all their heart. 
And so while this might appear to conflict with what I've just said, I don't believe that God creates people who are unable to be saved. I believe that anyone who seeks him will find him. We've been talking about pottery that's created for special use or for ordinary use, objects of wrath and objects of mercy. Well, there's another passage in scripture that talks about pottery. In Jeremiah 18, God tells Jeremiah to go down to the local potter and watch him work. And so Jeremiah says, I went down to the potter's house and found him working at his wheel. Now and then there would be something wrong with the pot he was molding from the clay with his hands. And so he would rework that clay into another kind of pot as he saw fit. Then the Lord's message came to me. I, the Lord, say, O nation of Israel, can I not deal with you as this potter deals with the clay? In my hands, you, O nation of Israel, are just like the clay in this potter's hand. And so this is the same idea, right? We're simply clay in the hands of our maker, and he can form us into whatever he pleases. But this is how God goes on. There are times, Jeremiah, when I threaten to uproot, tear down, and destroy a nation or kingdom. But if that nation I threaten stops doing wrong, I will cancel the destruction I intended to do to it. And there are times when I promise to build up and establish a nation or kingdom, but if that nation does what displeases me and does not obey me, then I will cancel the good I promised to do to it. So now tell the people of Judah and the citizens of Jerusalem this, the Lord says, I am preparing to bring disaster on you. I am making plans to punish you. So every one of you stop the evil things you've been doing, correct the way you have been living and do what is right. But they just keep saying, we don't care what you say. We will do whatever we want to do. We will continue to behave wickedly and stubbornly. So do you see the point? Yes, God is the potter and he can make us into whatever he wants us to be, but he doesn't. He allows us to choose our path, to make our own decisions. And whatever plan he maybe had in mind for us, he will happily change if we change ours. That's why in 2 Timothy, Paul writes, Now, in a wealthy home, we've looked at this before, there are not only gold and silver vessels, but also ones made of wood and clay. And some are for honorable use, special use, but others for dishonorable or ordinary use. So if someone cleanses himself of such behavior, he will be a vessel for honorable use, set apart, useful for the master, prepared for every good work. You see, that statement If someone cleanses himself, he will be a vessel for honorable use. That statement is pointless if we can't change the type of vessel we are. But we can. Our destiny is not preordained and unchangeable. We all have a hand, a say, in the vessel that we turn out to be. We all have a choice. Do we submit ourselves to the will of God and allow him to make us into an object of mercy? Or do we resist him? Say, we don't care what you say. We're going to do what we want to do and force him to mold us into objects of wrath. Does that make sense? Now that's fine. But in verse 17, Paul uses Pharaoh as an example of someone that God raised up for a purpose, to demonstrate his wrath to others. And then in the next verse, Paul makes this statement, So then God has mercy on whom he chooses to have mercy, and he hardens whom he chooses to harden. When Paul says that, he's referencing God's own words about Pharaoh um, before the plagues had even begun and before Moses had returned to Egypt. In Exodus 4, God said to Moses, When you go back to Egypt, see that you do before Pharaoh all these wonders that I have put under your control. 
but I will harden his heart and he will not let the people go. So here's the question. We've just said that everyone chooses for themselves what kind of vessel they will be. Did Pharaoh get that choice? Did Pharaoh have a say in the vessel he became or was he born predestined to be an object of wrath? Well, it's quite interesting. There were 10 plagues in Egypt, right? God didn't begin hardening Pharaoh's heart until the sixth one. Here's what it says during the first five plagues. Pharaoh's heart was hard. Pharaoh's heart remained hard. Pharaoh hardened his heart. Pharaoh's heart remained hard. Pharaoh hardened his heart. Pharaoh's heart remained hard. Six times God gave Pharaoh the opportunity to submit to him. And six times he allowed Pharaoh to choose what kind of vessel he would be. Six times Pharaoh chose to take his stand against God. Not because God had hardened his heart. This was all Pharaoh. His heart was set against God from the start. And when his heart wasn't hard enough, he made it harder still. You see, there was nothing in Pharaoh through those first five plagues that had any interest in submitting itself to the God of Israel. Then came the sixth plague, the plague of boils. And this time it says, but the Lord hardened Pharaoh's heart. But here's the amazing thing. Even then, after Pharaoh had made it absolutely clear where he stood, God gave him one more choice. God gave Pharaoh one more opportunity to submit to him of his own free will. After the seventh plague, the plague of hail, this is what it says. When Pharaoh saw that the rain and hail and thunder ceased, he sinned again. Both he and his servants hardened their hearts. So Pharaoh's heart remained hard and he did not release the Israelites as the Lord had predicted through Moses. After that, it's game over. But the Lord hardened Pharaoh's heart, the Lord hardens Pharaoh's heart, the Lord hardened Pharaoh's heart, the Lord hardened the heart of Pharaoh, king of Egypt. But what's the point? The point is God gave Pharaoh seven opportunities to choose what kind of vessel he wanted to be. Seven opportunities to demonstrate his will and his heart. And Pharaoh showed that he was completely, perfectly, if you like, unwilling to submit himself to God. He would not obey God. He would not trust God. He would not love God. So, okay, but then why harden Pharaoh's heart? If his heart was already hard, why did God want to harden it further? Well, it's interesting. The word that's translated hardened is, um, is a word that literally means to make stronger. So God strengthened Pharaoh's heart. You see, the fact is, God's plagues are getting more and more severe and the consequences for resisting God are growing ever more painful. And so as much as Pharaoh thought he was God, he was in the end just a man. There would come a point, perhaps in the sixth plague, when he would give up and submit. Not because he wants to, not because he trusts God or loves God. His heart is completely set against God. But Pharaoh would submit anyway, simply because the consequences of resisting God are more than he can handle. But the thing is, God's not done yet, right? There's still more that he wants to do, more power that he wants to show. And basically, Pharaoh can't handle it. Pharaoh will buckle before God is finished. And so God strengthens him. He hardens Pharaoh's will. He raises him up and makes him strong so that his knees won't give in. Why? 
so that God can finish what he started, so that he can demonstrate in its fullness his power over Egypt and his love for Israel. Does that make sense? But the point is this. God did not force Pharaoh to do anything that he did not already want to do. God wasn't happy that Pharaoh rejected him. He, as we've seen, does not want anyone to be lost, but everyone to come to repentance. But he will not force us to submit our lives to him, to trust him or love him either. In fact, you can't, right? You can't force somebody to trust you or love you. The minute you do, it's no longer trust and it's no longer love. Love has to be voluntary. It has to be something that you choose to do of your own free will. That's why God has given every one of us, even Pharaoh, the choice. And he, and he honors our choice. C.S. Lewis, in one of his books, writes that there's no teaching in Christianity that he would rather remove than the one about hell. He says, I would pay any price to be able to say truthfully, all will be saved. But my reason retorts, without their will or with it. You see, God does not want anyone to be lost. He wants everyone to be saved, but he will not save us against our will. He won't force us to be with him if we don't want to be with him. He won't force us to know him if we don't want to know him. The fact is, even those whom God hardens aren't hardened against their will. We are each free to choose our own destiny. We can freely choose to submit our lives to God, to trust in him with our heart with our lives, to trust Him with our lives and to love Him with all our hearts. And in so doing, find ourselves made into objects of God's mercy prepared for glory. Or we can freely choose to rebel against Him, to keep on saying, we don't care what you say, we're going to do what we want to do. That is why God can still find fault. It's because in reality, we have all resisted His will. Those who failed to receive God's mercy, have simply resisted it to the end. But okay, if that's true, if even Pharaoh is free to submit to God, then why was Paul talking about predestination in chapter 8? Or like, what's all this talk about a potter making one vessel for special use and another for ordinary use? In what ways are there objects prepared for destruction and objects of mercy prepared beforehand for glory. Are we or are we not created for a purpose? In Proverbs, it actually says, the Lord has made everything for a purpose, even the wicked for the day of disaster. In Jeremiah, God says, before I formed you in your mother's womb, I chose you. Before you were born, I set you apart. I appointed you to be a prophet to the nations. And then David writes, your eyes saw my unformed substance, All the days ordained for me were recorded in your scroll before one of them came into existence. And it's actually quite funny. That word that's translated unformed substance in the Hebrew is golem. It's basically something that exists, but it hasn't been formed or shaped yet. And in the context of this verse, it's often translated like embryo or fetus, which makes sense when I was still in my mother's womb. But literally, David says, your eyes saw my golem. Anyway. How do we square the circle? In what way are we we created for a purpose, predestined to a particular outcome, but also freely able to choose what kind of vessels we want to be? Well, I think that this is one of 
those places where the eternal and the temporal, that which is part of time, come into conflict. You see, we're all living in the stream of time where one event appears to follow another. And the mo- the only moment that we really have any control over is this one, right? The, n- the now. What happened yesterday or three seconds ago is in the past. It's unchangeable. And what will happen tomorrow, well, hasn't happened yet, right? So anything can happen. The events of tomorrow are entirely unfixed and unknown to us and to everyone else. But see, the same is not true for God. Time itself is a part of the world that God created. And so when we say that God is eternal, we don't mean that he has an infinite amount of time. We mean that God exists outside of time, in eternity. That's why Isaiah writes, for this is what the high and exalted one says, the one who inhabits eternity, whose name is holy. God doesn't inhabit time. He doesn't exist within it. God inhabits eternity. He exists outside of time, above it. And as a consequence, our lives aren't a series of events to him. It's not like he has to remember what you did yesterday or foresee what you will do tomorrow. No, God just sees you doing it the same way that he sees what you're doing right now. Does that make sense? All of time is now for God. And this has some really important implications for our freedom because it's true. From the perspective of eternity, God has already seen the decisions you're going to make tomorrow. So in a sense, they are fixed. They're unchangeable, predestined if you like. But that's only when you're viewing life from eternity. We don't inhabit eternity yet. We exist within time. And within time, well, tomorrow hasn't happened yet. Your decisions... You haven't made them yet. And when tomorrow does come, you will find yourself no less free to make your own choices than you are free to make your choices now, today. Does that make sense? As C.S. Lewis puts it in mere Christianity, in a sense, God does not know your actions till you have done it. But then the moment at which you have done it is already now for him. So that's Kind of cool, right? God can see all of time and he knows all the decisions we're going to make before we ever make them, which makes sense. And I I think that is fair. We're not being held responsible for things that we have no control over. We are only judged for the decisions that we freely make. But unfortunately, I don't think that's where this particular rabbit hole ends. Because see, I don't think it's just that God knows our decisions before he has seen us make them because all of time is now for him. The Bible seems to suggest that God knew what our decisions would be before he created the world, before time began. Does that make sense? In Romans, as sorry, in chapter 8, Paul wrote, those whom God foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his son. And I asked you at the time, like, what does it mean to foreknow something? And you told me it means to know before. So God apparently knew us before. Before what? Well, certainly before we were born. But in Ephesians, Paul writes, He chose us, God chose us in Christ before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before Him in love. So do you see? It's not just that having created time, God can now see all of time and in some sense, God could see all of time before it existed. 
that I, th I think is what the Bible describes as the wisdom of God. In some incomprehensible way, God knows. He knows all of history before it began. He knows the choices that you will make tomorrow. And he knew them before, before Adam was. And so here is where I think God does assume some responsibility for our ultimate destiny. Not in creating us in such a way that we can only choose a particular end, but in creating us knowing the end that we will freely choose. The moment that God creates you, knowing that you will submit your life to him, he has like in effect predestined you to salvation, right? To be, as Paul says, conformed to the image of his son, holy and blameless before him in love. At the same time, the moment that God creates someone, knowing that they will reject him, he has in reality predestined them to wrath. They have in effect been prepared for destruction. Does that make sense? That I think is the interaction between God's sovereignty and our freedom, the union between predestination and free choice. But that leaves, for me, one, one more question to answer. Fine, God does not prevent anyone from coming to him. God's mercy and salvation is freely available to all who would trust him, all who would place their faith in him. But still, God's creating people who he knows will reject him. He's creating people who are predestined for hell. Even if they do choose that end themselves, why would God create them? Surely it would be better not to, knowing what their end will be. Now, I think this is probably where Paul's words come in. Who indeed are you, a mere human being, to talk back to God? Because are we really so wise that we can advise God? Do you understand this world so well that things would be better done our way? Obviously not, right? The very fact that God has created objects of wrath tells us that there must be a reason for it, that the purpose of God's creation would not be achieved without them. Now, I don't know for sure why that is, but I think Paul suggests a possibility to us in verses 22 and 23. But what if God willing to demonstrate his wrath and to make known his power, has endured with much patience the objects of wrath prepared for destruction. And what if he is willing to make known the wealth of his glory on the objects of mercy that he has prepared beforehand for glory? I think, I think that takes us back to the example of Pharaoh, back to Esau. What if there has to be a contrast? What if without the objects of wrath, there would be no objects of mercy? What if the rejection of some is necessary for the salvation of others? You know, this world is exceptionally complicated, more than we can ever comprehend. And we're like, just don't create them. And we think everything else will stay the same. But there's no reason to assume that that, that is true. In fact, if you've, if you've ever watched like a movie that explores time travel or the butterfly flick, you, you know it probably isn't. You make one small change and everything changes. And so... Why would God create people destined for wrath? It's not because he wants to. I think when we see that, see there, he says it's willing, uh, he has endured with much patience. That doesn't sound like something God's happy to be doing, but it's something that he's willing to do. And I think it's for the sake of those who are destined for mercy, even us whom he has called, not only from the Jews, 
but also for the Gentiles. Okay, does anyone else feel exhausted? I did warn you, this is a tough chapter that raises difficult, difficult issues and some, uh, to, from my mind, very uncomfortable questions. With that said, I realize we've gone like way off track and you've probably forgotten where we started and half the places we stopped along the way. So let's quickly retrace our steps. Here are the questions that we've been working through. Question number one, has God failed in the promises that he made to Israel? And Paul's answer was no. God's blessings have always only gone to a to chosen descendants, not just the physical ones. How does God choose who to bless? Well, it's, it's not based on our works. God decides for his own reasons who he's going to bless. Well, isn't that unjust? It would be if we deserve God's blessings, but none of us do. God's blessings are an expression of his mercy, and God is free to show or not show mercy to whomever he pleases. Well, then why not? show mercy to everyone and i think the answer to that is that we need contrast to see that god uses some people to demonstrate his power justice and love to others well if that's the case then why does god judge us aren't we just doing what he's created us to do and the answer to that i think is no god allows every one of us even pharaoh to choose whether we'll trust him or reject him that we are all free to choose our own destiny does that then mean that we're actually not predestined? Well, it depends on your perspective, right? Within the stream of time, we're not. We're not created in such a way that we are destined to a particular end. We are free in the decisions that we make. But from an eternal perspective, we've already made those decisions. They're made. Our end is fixed. And God knew that end before he created us. And so in creating us, God does predestine us to the outcome that we will ultimately choose. And we each play a part in his plan for the world. Well then, <clears throat> why create people knowing they will make choices that end in hell? And again, I think the answer to that is contrast. Without the objects of wrath, would there be any objects of mercy? And finally, boys, isn't that unfair? And the answer is, well, it would be if we weren't the ones choosing our end, but we are. Okay, so now let's go back to where this all started. Paul's dealing with the issue of Israel, right? These are the sons of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, men who were chosen and blessed by God. How is it that they find themselves separated from God and cut off from their Messiah? That's the question that Paul's been asking. And so, how has Paul answered that question? Well, firstly, he says, it's not as though the word of God had failed. God's word hasn't failed. God has always reserved his blessings for certain children, chosen children. And it appears that most of the present nation of Israel haven't been chosen. That's not unjust because, well, none of us deserve God's blessing, so he isn't obliged to bless us. Nor is it unfair because it's through Israel's own choices that they found, find themselves outside of God's mercy. 
At the end of this chapter, Paul will explain what those choices were. But first, why would God allow that to happen? Well, we'll get there in a couple of chapters. But in chapter 11, Paul will say that it is by their transgression that salvation has come to the Gentiles. You see, apparently God has allowed Israel to fall out of his grace so that we could receive it. God knew the choices that Israel would make, and he incorporated those choices into his plan to save us, which is great for us, not so good for Israel. But remember, this isn't the end of the story. There's more to God's plan. As Paul continues to say in in chapter 11, the gifts and the call of God are irrevocable. Just as you were formerly disobedient to God, but have now received mercy due to their disobedience, so they too have now been disobedient in order that by the mercy shown to you, they too may now receive mercy. For God has consigned all people to disobedience so that he may show mercy to them all. Oh, the depth and the riches, oh, the depth of the riches and wisdom and knowledge of God, how unsearchable are his judgments and how unfathomable his ways. And so in the end, God will show Israel the same mercy that he's shown to us. In the end, God will fulfill all the promises that he, had, that he made to Israel. They are irrevocable. In the end, Israel will be saved. But again, getting ahead of ourselves. For now, we just need to know that this hasn't caught God by surprise. This was always a part of his plan. And we can know that it was a, a part of God's plan because God told us about it beforehand in his word. And so back to Romans 9. Paul says, as God also says in Hosea, I will call those who were not my people, my people, and I will call her who was unloved, my beloved. And in the very place where it was said to them, you are not my people, there they will be called sons of the living God. And Isaiah cries out on behalf of Israel, though the number of the children of Israel are as the sand of the sea, only the remnant will be saved. For the Lord will execute his sentence on the earth completely and quickly. Just as Isaiah predicted, if the Lord of heaven's armies had not left us descendants, we would have become like Sodom and we would have resembled Gomorrah. So this comes back to Paul's point in verse 6. It's not as though the word of God had failed. Things may not be playing out the way that Israel expect them to, but what we're seeing doesn't contradict God's word. Rather, it's exactly what God told us to expect. Now that first reference in Hosea It kind of sounds like it's talking about us Gentiles, right? And I think it does have that meaning. In Ephesians, Paul writes, Therefore, remember that formerly you, the Gentiles in the flesh who are called uncircumcision by the so-called circumcision, that you were at that time without the Messiah, alienated from the citizenship of Israel and strangers to the covenant of promise, having no hope and without God in the world. But now in Christ Jesus, you who used to be far away have been brought near by the blood of Christ. And so that's the same idea, right? We Gentiles were not a part of God's people. We were, it seemed, unloved by God. But now God has chosen to call us his people. We have become his beloved. We who used to be far away have been brought near by the blood of Christ. And so it definitely carries that idea. But I think there's actually more layers to this reference. I think it has like a double meaning because if you look at those verses in context, God's actually not speaking about Gentiles. He's speaking about Israel. The book of Hosea is 
quite fascinating. There's this holy prophet of God called Hosea. And God tells him to marry a prostitute called Gomer. Now, can you imagine how humiliating that must have been for him? What is a holy man like Hosea doing with a woman like that, right? Which, in fact, reminds me a little bit of Jesus. When he's having dinner with Simon the Pharisee and a sinful woman comes and anoints his feet with perfume and washes them with her tears and dries them with her hair. And it says, now, when the Pharisee who had invited him saw this, he said to himself, if this man were a prophet, he would know who and what kind of woman this is who is touching him, that she is a sinner. Anyway, whatever it was that Hosea thought of all this, he obeyed God, married Gomer, and they had three kids together. Then what do you think happened? Well, she got bored with Hosea and she went back to her former life, back to prostitution. And God says, that's Israel. I lifted you out of the dirt and loved you, but you say, how have you loved us? And so God tells Hosea to divorce Gomer and abandon his kids, right? Wrong, obviously. God sends Hosea out to find Gomer. He tells Hosea to show love to her and to bring her back home. Now, can you imagine that? What on earth is going on, right? Like we've talked about, well, we've talked about prophetic patterns before and and that's that's what's happening here. God is using Hosea's life as a prophetic pattern. God's asking Hosea to act out in his relationship with Gomer a prophecy, an illustration of God's relationship with Israel. No matter how unfaithful Israel is, God will never stop loving them. He will never reject them or abandon them forever. In the end, God will go out to find them and God will bring them home again. Now, God told Hosea to give his children some quite unusual names. His first child, a son, God names Jezreel, saying that he will judge Israel in the valley of Jezreel. His second child, a daughter, God names Lo-Ruhamah, which means no pity. And God says that he will not show pity to Israel. The third child, who's another son, God names Lo-Ami, which means not my people. And God says that at least for a time, Israel will not be his people and he will not be their God, but just for a time. Because in the future, God says, I will commit myself to you forever. I will commit myself to you in righteousness and justice, in steadfast love and tender compassion. I will commit myself to you in faithfulness. Then you will acknowledge the Lord. Then I will plant her, Israel, as my own in the land. I will have pity on no pity. And I will say to not my people, you are my people. And he will say, you are my God. That's the context of Paul's reference to Hosea. Although Israel will be separated from God for a time, she will leave him and go off after other men. God will never reject them completely. God will never stop loving them. He will, in the end, forgive them. He will restore them and he will bring them back to himself and show them just how deeply he loves them. But again, that's in the future. In the meantime, God is preserving a remnant, a chosen few from the children of Israel to maintain his word and his promise to their fathers. We'll talk again a lot more about this when we get to chapter 11 about this remnant, but Paul quotes a couple of passages from Isaiah that talk about this. 
The first is, um, so okay, so Isaiah cries out on behalf of Israel, though the number of the children of Israel as the sand of the sea, only the remnant will be saved. For the Lord will execute his justice on the earth completely and quickly. Just as Isaiah predicted, if the Lord of heaven's armies had not left us descendants, we would have become like Sodom. We would have resembled Gomorrah. So Paul is quoting, again, a couple of passages in Isaiah, Isaiah 10, where God says, For though your people Israel are as numerous as the sand on the seashore, only a remnant will come back. Destruction has been decreed. Just punishment is about to engulf you. The sovereign Lord of heaven's armies is certainly ready to carry out the decreed destruction throughout the land. And then in Isaiah 1, it says, If the Lord of heaven's armies had not left us a few survivors, we would have quickly been like Sodom. We would have become like Gomorrah. And so Paul's point is that as bad as things are, they could be worse. There were no survivors in Sodom and Gomorrah. And that's not true for Israel. God has a covenant, a promise with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. He has made promises to Israel, and he will not fail to keep those promises. No matter how unfaithful Israel have been, God will always have mercy on them. He will always protect a remnant. There will always be survivors. And that's why every effort to destroy the Jews, and there have been many, has always failed. Because, in fact, it's Israel who will beg Jesus to return. And so there will always be a remnant. But still, it's only a remnant. Anyway, if we go back to Romans. Up until now, Paul has been dealing with God's side of this issue. Israel appears to be outside of God's mercy. Is that a problem in terms of God's word or his justice or his fairness? Paul's answer is no. For all the reasons we've discussed already. What's more, this isn't a surprise to God. He knew that Israel would find themselves here long before God made his promises to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And so this was always a part of God's plan. But while it may be a part of God's plan, it isn't God's fault. Ultimately, responsibility for Israel's present circumstances lie with Israel alone. We all get to choose the kind of vessel we will be in. And so now Paul's focus shifts to Israel's part in all of this. He begins to discuss some of the reasons why Israel are where they are. So if we look at verses 30 to 33, the end of chapter 9, Paul says, What shall we say then? The Gentiles who did not pursue righteousness obtained it. That is a righteousness that is by faith. But Israel, even though pursuing a law of righteousness, did not attain it. Why not? Because they pursued it not by faith, but as if it were possible by works. They stumbled over the stumbling stone, just as, as it is written, Look, I am laying in Zion a, so, a stone that will cause people to stumble and a rock that will make them fall. Yet the one who believes in him will not be put to shame. So basically, this is where things stand. The Gentiles, who weren't trying especially hard to be righteous, find themselves justified, declared righteous. They've obtained righteousness, even though they weren't really looking for it. Israel, meanwhile, have been desperately trying to be righteous for like more than a thousand years, but at the time that Paul's writing, but they stand unjustified, declared unrighteous by God. They've been chasing after righteousness, but they haven't found it. Why not? Well, as Paul says, it's because they pursued it, not by faith, but as if it were possible by works which takes us all the way back to chapter 3, right? This, like, this is 
This is exactly the point that Paul made. It is impossible for us to be justified or declared righteous based on our works. As Paul and David said, there is no one righteous, not even one. And so no one will be declared righteous. No one will be justified before God by the works of the law. That's why another kind of righteousness was necessary, right? That's why God offered us his righteousness in exchange for our faith, our trust, because there was no other way for us to be righteous. As Paul said in chapter 4, referring to the example of Abraham, but to the one who does not work, but believes in the one who declares the ungodly righteous, his faith is credited as righteousness. That is such wonderful news to anyone who realizes that they have no other hope of righteousness. But so far at least, Israel aren't interested in that kind of righteousness. They're still trying to obtain their own righteousness through the works of the law. And so Paul says they have stumbled over the stumbling stone. They've stumbled over that one thing that would actually make them righteous before God. The one thing that would actually bring them peace and salvation. Now, this idea of a stumbling stone is actually quite an interesting one. Paul quotes from Isaiah here. Look, I am laying in Zion a stone that will cause people to stumble and a rock that will make them fall. Yet the one who believes in him will not be put to shame. That comes from Isaiah, but interestingly, it doesn't come from a single verse in Isaiah. Paul is actually blending two passages together, both of which speak of a stone. He begins with Isaiah 28, which says, Look, I am laying a stone in Zion, an approved stone, set in place as a precious cornerstone for the foundation. The one who believes will not panic. So, God says that he is going to lay a stone in Jerusalem, in Zion. But this is not just any stone. This is a cornerstone, which is the very first stone that's laid when you begin building something like, say, a temple. And depending on the where you put that stone and the orientation with which you lay it, that is going to determine the location and orientation of every stone that comes afterwards. Does that make sense? The entire building is founded on that first stone, the precious cornerstone. So, okay, there's going to be some important stone which forms the cornerstone of something that God is building. And then it says, whoever believes will not panic. There are a couple of curious things there. Firstly, Paul and Peter, which we'll look at shortly, they both quote this verse from Isaiah, but they both quote it from the Septuagint translation, which is, the Greek translation of the Old Testament that was completed something like 300 to 150 BC. Um, and for some reason, the Septuagint translates that uh, those last words as put to shame instead of panic or like rush, act in haste. And I'm not sure why that is. It's not something I've had a chance to dig into yet. But for now, what's more interesting to me is, is that God doesn't specify what we're believing, right? He just says the one who believes will not panic or be put to shame. Anyway, then in the middle of this quote from Paul, uh, he splices in another passage from Isaiah. Isaiah 8 says, you must recognize the authority of the Lord of heaven's armies. He is the one you must respect. He is the one you must fear. He will be a sanctuary but to both the houses of Israel, he will be a stone that makes them stumble and a rock that makes them fall. 
He will become a trap and a snare to the residents of Jerusalem. Many of them will stumble and will fall and be broken. So here we have another stone, right? This one apparently will cause Israel to stumble. They'll trip and fall. But what is this stone? Or more precisely, who is this stone? Because it's actually quite explicit, right? You must recognize the authority of the Lord of Heaven's armies. He is the one you must respect. He will be a stone that makes them stumble and a rock that makes them fall. So this stone that they trip over is the Lord of Heaven's armies. Out of interest, who do you think is speaking? Also the Lord. So this is the Lord speaking about the Lord. Anyway, by putting these two passages together, Paul is equating the stumbling stone in Isaiah 8 with the cornerstone in Isaiah 28. Does that make sense? As far as Paul's concerned, the cornerstone is the stumbling stone. The Lord of heaven's armies is the cornerstone, and it is the cornerstone that Israel will trip and fall over. And we learn a little bit more about this stone from David in Psalm 118. He says, The stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. Are you starting to see the picture? Who do you suppose that rejected cornerstone is? It's Jesus, right? Christ alone is the cornerstone. He is the stone upon which God is building his entire kingdom. And whoever believes in him will not be put to shame. But what about those who don't believe in him? Well, this is where Peter comes in. So as you come to him, a living stone rejected by men, but chosen and precious in God's sight, you yourselves as living stones are built up as a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood and to offer spiritual sacrifices that are acceptable to God through Christ Jesus. For it says in scripture, look, I lay in Zion a stone, a chosen and precious stone, and whoever believes in him will never be put to shame. So, and that's coming from Isaiah 28. So you who believe see his value, but for those who do not believe, the stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone, that's Psalm 118, and a stumbling stone and a rock to trip over, Isaiah 8. So Peter also is putting all three verses together. <clears throat> Those of us who believe see Jesus as the cornerstone, the rock upon which all else stands. But to those who do not believe, to the nation of Israel, both then and ever since, Jesus is the stumbling block. As Paul says to the Corinthians, Jews demand miraculous signs and Greeks ask for wisdom, but we preach about a crucified Christ, a stumbling block to Jews and foolishness to Gentiles. But to those who are called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ is the power of God and the wisdom of God. So it is Jesus, the crucified Messiah, that is the stumbling block to the Jews. He is a stone they cannot get over. He is a stone that they have rejected, and he is the cornerstone of our salvation. As it says in Acts 4, there is salvation in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. Anyway, that's where things stand. Israel have rejected their only means of salvation, the only way to be declared righteous. They have rejected Jesus. But there's something really important to notice here. When Paul explains why Israel are where they are, he doesn't say God has mercy on whom he chooses to have mercy and he hardens whom he chooses to harden. He doesn't appeal to the sovereign choice of God. He places the responsibility with Israel. 
it is because they pursued it not by faith, but by works. Does that make sense? It was Israel who rejected Jesus, not the other way around. And I think you see this at the triumphal entry. Jesus is presenting himself to Israel as their Messiah in exactly the way that God said that he would. These were Jesus' words. O Jerusalem, Jerusalem, you who kill the prophets and stone those who are sent to you. How often I have longed to gather your children together as a hen gathers her chicks under her wings, but you were not willing. Jesus, the Lord of heaven's armies, the cornerstone, has longed to gather Israel to himself. He has longed to protect them and show his love for them, but they were not willing to come to him. As a result, God has taken his word and his salvation to the Gentiles. Paul predicted this in the book of Acts when the Jews in Rome refused to believe the gospel. Paul made one last statement. He said, the Holy Spirit spoke rightly to your ancestors through the prophet Isaiah when he said, go to this people and say, you'll keep on hearing, but you will never understand. You'll keep on looking, but you will never perceive. For the hearts of this people has become dull and their ears are hard of hearing and they've closed their eyes so that they would not see with their eyes and hear with their ears and understand with their hearts and turn and I would heal them. Therefore be advised that this salvation from God has been sent to the Gentiles. They will listen. Jesus kind of predicted this too when he was speaking to the people in Nazareth in his hometown. He said, I tell you the truth, no prophet is accepted in his hometown. But in truth, I tell you, there were many widows in Israel in Elijah's day when the sky was shut up three and a half years and there was a great famine over all the land. Yet Elijah was, not sent, was sent to none of them, but only to a woman who was a widow at Zarephahad in... No? Zarephahad? in Sidon, in Lebanon. And there were many lepers in Israel at the time of the prophet Elisha, yet none of them was cleansed except Naaman the Syrian. When they heard this, all the people in the synagogue were filled with rage. They got up, forced him out of the town and brought him to the brow of the hill on which their town was built so that they could throw him down the cliff. But he passed through the cloud and went on his way. Do you see the point that Jesus is making? He's like, this is a pattern. Israel rejects God. So God sends his word or his prophets to the Gentiles. And so that's where we are today. The nation of Israel have stumbled over the stumbling stone. They've rejected their cornerstone. And so the salvation from God has been sent to the Gentiles. And the Gentiles, at least in part, have listened. So that's Romans 9. As I said, it, it's mostly dealing with the issue of Israel, but from God's perspective, from the perspective of God's plan for salvation and for the salvation in particular of the Gentiles. Next week, we move to chapter 10 of Romans, and there it's focused on the same issue like Israel's situation, but now it's more from Israel's perspective and Israel's the part that Israel have played in in their circumstances. And then eventually we'll get to chapter 11 and look at, well, what's God's future plan for Israel?